providing real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Unplugged will dive into pressing policy issues facing the real estate and title insurance industry at the state and federal levels in 2021. I would like to welcome Elizabeth Blosser and Chris Morton of the American Land Title Association for our discussion today. Hey, Linda, it's good to be here. Thanks, Linda. Great to be with you as always. You're very welcome. So the American Land Title Association is a trade association with a lot of membership, but Alta's efforts and benefits are for non-members as well, meaning you advocate for everybody, not just your members. Absolutely, Linda. Now, let me just say it's not just our advocacy, but I think it's our education, it's our events at Alta that are really targeted to the entire uh, title and settlement services industry. And our goal is always to continue to grow engagement within the industry through Alta and always welcome new voices, new ideas, so we can get stronger as an industry, create greater partnerships, uh, and continue to thrive. From an advocacy perspective, what I'll say is, if you just think about what happened in 2020 this past year with the pandemic and the challenges that we all faced around uh, the country, some of the outcomes that were driven uh, with Alta partnering with our members really did benefit everyone, whether you're a member or not. So just think about the fact that early on in the pandemic, we realized we needed to ensure that title and settlement services were deemed essential at the federal level by the Department of Homeland Security. And we went to them and had a conversation about how do we get on the essential services list, which was able to then be used at the state and local levels to advocate through the state LTAs in partnership with Alta to make sure that, you know, all the way down to the county recorders level that we were doing what we needed to do to keep business going. The second thing I'll just note is we had a whole lot of challenges in the near term uh, part of the pandemic around liquidity. And the federal government thankfully put forward the Paycheck Protection Program. We were able to use all of our resources to educate the membership and the non-members about what it is that the PPP program was, how to take advantage of it. And then we advocated to make sure that simplified loan forgiveness was included in the year-end package in 2020 that was signed into law by then-President Trump, as well as the ability to deduct expenses for those who used forgivable loan proceeds. So, you know, it's those kinds of things. And one more example, able to ensure that the National Defense Authorization had the Corporate Transparency Act included in that legislation, which is something that will allow then perhaps the burden of geographic targeting orders to lessen over time now that there are requirements for shell companies to report to the federal government on their ownership structures. So I could go on and on, but maybe we can talk a little bit also about just the federal uh, agenda this year. And and I want to bring Elizabeth in here too, um, to talk a little bit about the state perspective. 
perspective. But as we think about our industry this year at the federal and the state levels, there's been a lot of political change. Obviously, we've got the, the Biden administration and Democrats in control of both chambers. Their number one sort of set of priorities is around COVID relief and recovery. Until that gets under control, all these other things that you know they want to do are not going to be possible. So that's job one. The Congress has passed and the president has signed uh, the American Recovery Plan, and now they're going to move to the next phase of whatever stimulus is required. Infrastructure has been talked about as one of those places. But as we sort of go deeper into who it is that we are as an industry and what we want to do, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, I think. Secure Notarization Act is something that we've talked about before in terms of getting that bill reintroduced for remote online notarization. Wire transfer fraud and continuing to propel awareness at the federal level. And there's going to be a whole discussion around housing opportunity and affordability. And so we need to be engaged in discussions about first-time homebuyer tax credits and those kinds of things. There will also be challenges. The CFPB has a new director. They're going to be more aggressive with enforcement. So we've got to be, you know, engaged in introducing ourselves and having those conversations. And we can, you know, we can talk further about that. But I want to bring Elizabeth in here, maybe talk a little bit, Elizabeth, about how the state and federal come together from your perspective. Yeah, it's really interesting right now because there's such an interplay between what's happening in the state legislatures and what's happening on Capitol Hill. A lot of the issues that we're looking at at the federal level are also big issues in state capitals as well. So Chris mentioned the Secure Notarization Act, and I would have to say probably the number one thing that we're watching as an industry right now is remote online notarization legislation at the state level. We have 30 states that have enacted legislation to allow for the use of remote notarization of the 20 remaining states in the District of Columbia. You know, we've got legislation happening in about 15 to 17 of those states this year. So lots of continued activity on that front when it comes to kind of technology and tools that we can use in the uh, closing process. The other big thing that's that's also an issue on the federal level is really new laws and regulations around how data and information is stored, managed, and used. This is a really big issue for consumers. They're concerned about their information. Is it safe where it's stored? Who's it being shared with? How's it being used? Obviously, we need a lot of information to help make sure a real estate transaction goes well from everybody's perspective. And so this is something that's important to our industry to keep an eye on. It's also important because it's really come up in discussions about local land records. Everybody has to make sure that their ownership of a property is reflected in the local land records. And those are available available generally to to the public through various means. And there's questions about at-risk parties and people who don't want the combination of their name and address information available to the general public. And so how do you address those types of concerns while still having a robust public record? It's really kind of this twofold goal that the industry has about making sure that 
at-risk parties are protected from a privacy standpoint, but they still have the ability to buy, sell, and refinance property. And that those two things can happen together and one doesn't prevent the other from happening. So I think there's going to be a lot of discussions on that, that um, they're already happening at the state level and frankly, at the federal level now too, there's legislation on those issues. So clearly things that are going to be important moving forward. And you're so right, Elizabeth, we have to be very mindful about not only the data in motion, which you can have wire fraud or wire diversion, but also that data at rest and how long it's there on those servers sitting dormant and who can access that or, you know, fraudsters get into that idle information as well. And to that, technology is changing the way industries of all types are doing business, right? Specifically, there are more digital options for commerce. As an attorney, a realtor, a title company, or a consumer, what policy changes or issues should we be watching out for or just following? I think there's so much in this space, and we're going to be continue to see a lot more in this space, especially as everybody tries to move to more digital transactions. I, I don't think that the touchless transactions of COVID are going away anytime soon. I think we're going to continue to see that. Uh, it was kind of funny. This past week, I needed cash for something. And I realized, you know, I don't remember the last time I've had cash. And I think that we all can can relate to that where we have all of these new payment options. And that's one thing that's kind of interesting and something our industry should be be watching is conversations about digital funds and digital fund transfers and all of these different ways that you can now get money to people, you know, whether it's through Zelle or Venmo or PayPal or whatever these tools are. And how are those going to be used in real estate down the road. It's really important for people to be viewing all of these things through the lens of thinking about good funds. Our industry has worked, you know, over the last handful of years to make sure that state laws ensured that there was good funds in real estate transfers, meaning that there was some finality to the financial transfer and that you know payments in a real estate transaction couldn't be reversed down the road. And so as we look at these new types of payment options that are out there, we kind of need to think about all of it and how it works with uh, state good funds laws. To that end, we have a work group that has put together some good resources that are available on the ALT website and have to give a shout out to FNF's Jason Nadeau, who's really led the work group effort on that. We've enjoyed his leadership and so many people from FNF who have been leaders uh, on our work groups on legislative issues. Yes, Jason Nadeau is a great guy. He's our chief digital officer, and he has brought about such different awareness to what we're doing, not only because of his background, but the way he actually explains and educates not only our staff, but consumers as well. Absolutely. I would just add on the back of Elizabeth's comments, too, if you think about this from a federal perspective, the whole area of innovation, fintech, and all of those things is being explored very um, aggressively uh, on Capitol Hill. There's a lot of questions about, you know, what does it mean from a regulatory perspective? How do traditional businesses interact with these new platforms and players? 
And so we can expect, particularly for, for as businesses are thinking about how do you create partnerships, you also have to look at this through the lens of what is it going to mean from an oversight perspective, from a regulatory perspective, you know, being mindful of the perceptions in Washington, just about how these new technologies work and whether or not they're serving the broader you know, sort of market economy and different demographic groups. I mean, there's a lot of questions here. And so one of the things we're also looking at is how we can engage in that dialogue at the federal level to make sure our voices is part of that process. Well, you know, and they've got a big job ahead of them because there's one thing to have consumer convenience, but then what about the safety concerns that go with it? We have a big job ahead of us in informing even state and local authorities on all things fintech when money is going back and forth. Don't you agree? Yeah, and that goes right into the privacy conversation. I always like to do a little bit of level set because when you think about data, you sort of think about data privacy and data security together. If data Privacy is really about how you use data. Data security is what happens when you lose data. And really the conversation happening right now out there that that a lot of people are focused on is that first one, the privacy. How do you use data? What information is out there? And certainly seeing a huge push on both the state and the federal levels on, on data privacy law. California was the first state in the country to pass comprehensive data privacy laws that, that give consumers rights when it relates to their data. Basically, it's a fundamental change, really, if you think about it. We've shifted from a data aggregator who collects data owning that data, being able to do what they want with that data to a system where really the person who owns the data is the person whom the data is about. And you have rights related to that information, how it can be used. Um, You have rights to, to get access to it, to have it corrected, to have it deleted in some cases. And so certainly going to see more of that. Virginia just passed a similar law here in the the last uh, week or so, anticipating a couple other states may pass legislation yet this year. And it's a hot, hot topic up on Capitol Hill. And Chris, you can you can talk to kind of some of the debate that's happening on the Hill on this issue. Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. I think, you know, taking a step back, just looking at where the parties are, I mean, there's still a lot of divergence in terms of the approach to the issue of privacy from a Republican or a Democratic perspective. Not to say that they won't get there in terms of uh, consensus, but it's going to take some, I think, some outside circumstances, whether it's big technology, you know, sort of the social platforms and the pressure there. But there's going to have to be a triggering event or events that bring them together. From our perspective, you know, one of the things obviously we're looking at is standardization is important. You can't have all of these patchwork of state laws in all 50 states. A federal standard that would be balanced is something that we'd love to see there. But there's a lot of uh, question, particularly now with Democrats in charge, California becomes the floor, not the ceiling. And things like private rights of action 
uh, become a part of the conversation, which obviously is a, is a concern. And we want to make sure that the standards that are in place in terms of things like Gramm-Leach-Bliley that we have to comply with are the, the things that remain in any effort. There's a number of bills out there that were in um, discussions with policymakers. I think there are some middle-of-the-road approaches that more moderate and centrist uh, Democrats in particular are trying to drive who understand you know, the business perspective and are trying to do the right thing by consumers but also balance that. Uh, so we're in a number of those conversations conversations now and uh, continue to do that going forward. Yeah, there's a real thoughtful debate that needs to happen around all of this, knowing that, you know, kind of the status quo is not going to remain kind of how we've done things and trying to figure out the best path forward, which leads me to I need to give another shout out to this one to Liz Riley, who's been so uh, helpful to us on the the data privacy uh, work group and leading our efforts there and communication with so many state legislatures, the CFPB, federal lawmakers and others. So I want to ask about some other issues coming up at both the state and federal levels. What about tax law changes that are going to affect corporations mom and pop businesses and just you and me as consumers. Yeah, that's a that's a terrific question. And the tax man will cometh. It's just a matter of time. He always does. You know, as they say, um, you know, death and taxes are certainties in life. So where we are now as it relates to the federal debate on the tax front, obviously the Biden administration and then Biden when he was candidate had a pretty robust uh, set of proposals around tax code changes, particularly looking at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 that was signed into law by President Trump and reversing a lot of what was done in that act. It's viewed by the new administration, you know, as skewed towards the wealthy. The focus is really going to be, again, that that frame of sort of balanced fairness, equity. So you can expect in this next go round, when we pivot from the rescue plan of COVID to the recovery plan for the economy, that the focus is going to be on rectifying some of those imbalances that by the Biden administration and Democrats on the Hill saw in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The corporate rate will be part of that, driving that up from 21 to 28, perhaps. The top marginal rate's going to go up. Uh, things like the pass-through deduction will be heavily scrutinized and potentially reversed. And then as we take it down, though, to our industry, things like the tax treatment of 1031 like-kind exchanges become part of that conversation. The, the Biden plan during the campaign was to potentially use changes in that space to offset programmatic expenses for child care and elder care. And so we have to be a part of that dialogue to advocate why the current treatment as we see it is valuable. And we've got a great story to tell. There's been a lot of work done. We have a coalition that's robust across the real estate industry. We've already started having dialogue with uh, federal policymakers. And quite honestly, obviously, in the commercial space, we're in a very challenging time still as it relates to the commercial real estate economy. So so there's work to be done, but I think we have a better than even chance of making our case productively. And we've got a lot of research to back that, that the, the coalition has put together that is beneficial. And Elizabeth, you can talk a little bit about that and other items in that space. 
1031s, the like kind exchange are obviously really important as you look at recovery right now, especially in commercial real estate from the COVID crisis. When you look at office property, retail property, hotels, things like that. The value of 1031s is really getting the best use out of of property. The use of 1031s allows for more property to change hands so that it does get to that highest, best use. It creates jobs through that process. And so there's a a good conversation to be had around uh, those things with federal lawmakers. Also, a lot of good conversation to have around the use of 1031s in rural communities, especially when you're talking about farmland, uh, land conservation, things like that. So looking forward to having those conversations with with lawmakers on on this issue and hopefully maintaining 1031s moving forward. It's really important for our economy. Yeah, I can't agree with you more because there are a lot of small businesses made up of mom and pop investors that the reason why they purchase six flats or two flats or have investment single family homes is for deferring those taxes. But also to that, there are tax advantages on a yearly basis. And if that's taken away, there's no reason for these investors to invest in multifamily housing or those investment properties. And that could be a huge effect on the housing industry. Yeah, especially on multifamily housing at a a time when that's a real big concern. Right. So, number one, I want to thank you both, Elizabeth and Chris, for joining us today. And to close us out, what should our listeners take away from our discussion today? Well, Linda, I think it's really important to recognize while Elizabeth and I and the team in Washington and around the country are doing this work, it's important to raise your own voice and insert your own voice. Your voice matters and we need it at the end of the day. You can have a real impact on the outcome of policy debates if you simply raise your hand and get engaged in advocacy. The Alta team can help guide you. You know, there's an old adage in Washington, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Well, it's important for all of us to be at the table so that we can advocate appropriately for our industry. Elizabeth, Chris, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.